the reasons for this drought will go to the very character of God and the very purpose of our existence. So grab your Bible, join me in 1 Kings chapter 17. We're picking right back up this morning in the story of Elijah. Now we have really just gotten underway in the story. We have spent a little bit of time in order to set the context to understand what's going on in Israel at this time. And we have understood that Israel is experiencing its darkest of dark days. Spiritually speaking, there has never been a time that is darker or more spiritually oppressive than right now because all of the leadership of Israel has completely utterly forsaken Yahweh. The leadership has thrown completely in with Baal and Asherah. Ahab is on the throne. He is described as the wickedest king that has ever ruled Israel. He has taken it upon himself to outdo even his father in wickedness, who had been described as the wickedest king of Israel up until that point. But he has taken it upon himself to outdo even his father in wickedness and offending Yahweh. He has married this priestess, this prophetess of Baal, the queen of Tyre, and he has brought her here to Israel as they have made it their mission to eradicate from all of Israel, not just the worship of the true God, Yahweh, but in fact, all reminders that they ever were the people of Yahweh. So they have gone through the land and they have torn down the altars to Yahweh. All those times that you read in your Old Testament in which God did something powerful in Israel and the people would want to remember that by building an altar for its remembrance. That is what's being torn down in Israel because they want to erase from the collective memory of all the Israelites any memory of them ever being Yahweh's covenant people. So they are tearing down the altars. They're killing the prophets of Yahweh. They have these 450 prophets of Baal and these 400 prophets of Asherah that are all on the official payroll of the king of Israel. And so Israel, who, who is the people that are called by God's name, remember they're the very name Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob. So they are called by the very name of God's people at the very time of God's people. He has chosen them and they have taken from their leadership. They have forsaken Yahweh. And so Israel, who is the very people of God, they are called by God's name. They have forsaken Yahweh. His chosen people have forsaken them. And from their leadership down, they have abandoned Yahweh as a people. As far as the people go, some of them are still following Yahweh as best they can. Some are following Baal. There's sort of a mixed bag, some teeter, teetering back and forth going on. But all of them as a nation, as a people, they are on the brink of completely turning their back on Yahweh. Those who are Yahweh followers have been silenced. They have no voice in the culture. They are afraid. They do not want to speak out. Meanwhile, those prophets of Baal are strutting around like they own the place because, quite frankly, they do right now. And so these are the darkest of days that Israel has yet to experience. Not only this, but there is also this growing feeling that all those things that were written in the scriptures, all those holy threats written in the scriptures towards God's people, if they would turn their back on God, all those threats are now being ignored because this is evident by the fact that Jericho has now been rebuilt. Jericho was, of course, the city that God destroyed as the people first came into the land. 
And God says, you are not to rebuild the city. Whoever rebuilds this city will do so at the cost of their own firstborn and their lastborn. Yet they've gone right ahead and done it. So there's this increasing feeling that God's threats are empty threats. The living God's threats are empty. He's not going to follow through with any of these things. We will do what we want to do. And so there's just this increasing spiritual darkness over the land. And right into the situation steps this man, Elijah. Now, we're not told who his parents were. We're not told what tribe he was from. We're told nothing about his calling to be a prophet. Instead, he just steps into the scene into this darkest of dark times. And this wild man from across the Jordan and this mountainous, hilly country of Gilead, this this wild country that's untamed, so to speak, he steps into the scene right into the king's court, right into the king's presence, wearing these strange clothes and speaking in this strange way and having the very name that is offensive to all of the leadership of Israel at that time, for his very name means Yahweh is my God. This man Elijah steps into the scene with all the courage and with all, with all the boldness that he is showing. And if you wanted a visual, I thought maybe a good visual of this would maybe be Braveheart. You've seen the movie Braveheart. That might make a pretty good visual for Elijah right now. So Elijah steps into this scene with all this boldness and he confronts Ahab and he confronts Jezebel. As the Lord God of Israel lives, this God that you thought that you were done with, this God that you thought that you could be finished with by tearing down his altars, by killing his priests, by subduing all his people, by bringing this priestess of Baal, you thought that you could be done with Yahweh. But I'm here to tell you that not only is he the God of Israel, he's the God that lives. Baal was not the God that lives. Baal is not the God of Israel, but Yahweh is the God of Israel and Yahweh lives. And I'm here to tell you, well, that's what we'll get to today because he's here today to pronounce the drought upon them. But he says, before this living God of Israel, before whom I stand. So we're going to answer and we're going to ask the question over and over as we look at the story of Elijah. We're going to ask the question, where does this man get such courage? Where does he get such spiritual boldness? Where does he get such power in prayer? And the first answer comes to us in how he describes himself. He describes himself as the one who stands before the living God. So that speaks to us of this cultivated awareness that he lives all of his life in the presence of God, under the sight of God, under the watchful care of God. And that is what is going to fuel his spiritual courage and his effectiveness in prayer. But he says to Ahab, he says, I'm here to tell you that you are not done with Yahweh. Yahweh is the one before whom I stand. And now, therefore, I say this, and that will bring bring us up to our passage today. So with that slight introduction being done, let's now turn to our passage. This morning, we'll be looking at verses one through three of 1 Kings chapter 17. So let's begin by reading once again from verse one. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And he did so and went according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning 
and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So now we've made our way up to really the beginning in earnest of the Elijah story. We've just introduced the context of Israel and we've introduced a little bit about this man, Elijah. And so now we're really ready to to see how this all begins because Elijah steps into the scene and the first thing that he really has to say is he's, he's going to pronounce this drought upon the land. And so he's pronounced this drought and his words here are, are these, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So let's just set a little bit of con- contextual understanding about the climate of Israel that will give us some insight into the drought that has been proclaimed. That'll help us as we think through this drought that Elijah pronounces. So this, the climate that, uh, we should, how should I say, the rainfall patterns in Palestine are somewhat different from ours here in the sense that we don't experience a dry season and a rainy season or a season of year that's wetter than another season in particular. We just experience, thankfully, we experience more or less the same amount of rainfall throughout the year. Now, this was not the case in ancient Palestine or or even today in Palestine. In many places of the world, they will experience a rainy season and a drier season of the year. And this is true for Israel. So if you look into your notes here, let's just begin to understand a little bit about the climate in which Elijah pronounces this drought. From your notes in Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is before the people enter the land. And this is Moses speaking. And if you remember, Moses will not enter the land, but he's preparing the people to enter into this land after he dies. And one of the things that Moses is telling them, he's telling them that the climate that you will experience will be different from what you're accustomed to experiencing in Egypt, where you came from. So look with me, verse 10 of Deuteronomy 11. Moses says, For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it. So Egypt is a land. If you've ever studied Egypt, you remember perhaps how the ancient Egyptians were just geniuses. They were so clever and they invented these ways of irrigation because the Nile is really how you live or die in Egypt. The Nile is the source. And so you have this Nile River, but you you don't have a whole lot of rainfall. And so from centuries and centuries, millennia ago, they have invented these ingenious ways of irrigating the land from the Nile, these ways of, of mechanically pumping the water to their fields without, of course, having the benefit of electrical pumps or whatnot. And so they would irrigate the land. And this is the context from which the Israelites are coming. They're coming from this context of a land that was basically flat and watered by one major river. And they used that river to irrigate their crops, as Moses said. But God says, it's not going to be like that here. There in Egypt, you watered the seed, you you planted the seed and you watered it, you irrigated it. But the land to which you are going over to possess, it's different. This is a land of hills and valleys, says Moses. So irrigating the land of hills and valleys really can't be done with the ancient methods of irrigation that the Egyptians had invented. But it, it, of course, can be done with things like electrical pumps and gasoline-powered pumps today. But in the day of the settling of Canaan by God's people, the land of Palestine, I should say, the irrigating of the land, which wasn't flat, well, that simply could not be done. So God says, I know this. I know that this is a land of hills and valleys. And so you won't be able to irrigate it like you have been accustomed 
to growing your crops previously in Egypt. Instead, this land, it says, drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. So the land of Palestine was going to be very much visibly and obviously more dependent upon the Lord to water it by way of rain, more connected to the Lord's hand of providence as the Lord sends rain. And then as we'll see in just a little bit, dew. So what that's that's doing, first of all, is that that is bringing together more of an understanding, more of a connection between God's providential hand and the goodness of the land for, in, in other words, to say, in, in Egypt, when the people would irrigate their crops by way of the Nile, of course, the Nile came from God. The water in the Nile came from God. The land came from God. All those things were from God as well. But the fact is that they were transporting the water from the Nile to their crops. And it provided in their minds a little bit of a separation, a little bit of a separation between the goodness of the crops and the providential hand of God. You see how that works? Because they were irrigating their crops. They could allow themselves to believe that they were responsible for the goodness of the land to a greater degree than that they will now be able to in the land of Canaan because God says in the land of Canaan, this is a land that I care for by way of rain and dew. So God says this will be different. You won't be able to do your own methods of taking water to your crops. Instead, you're going to rely on me. They always did, in reality, rely upon God as we do today. But, but now that reliance will be more, much more obvious, much more difficult to overlook or to, to ignore. In much the same way as many of the things of our world today make it easy for us to overlook the providential hand of God because many things about our world today appear as though we are providing for ourselves when in fact it's, of course, God doing the providing. But God's saying you're going into a land in which my providential hand will be more obvious and more difficult to ignore. And so God is bringing closer together in their minds their, their day-to-day lives, this, this connection between his, the goodness of His providential hand and their day-to-day way of life by, by way of the fact that they are unable to bypass any sort of a dry season or drought in the land because the, because the land itself, first of all, doesn't have a Nile River flowing through it. And second of all, it's, it's very hilly and mountainous and cannot be irrigated prior to the days of modern technology. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. And so this land will drink water by the rain from heaven and by the dew. This is a land that God cares for, he says. So when this drought comes, there won't be the option to say, well, let's get some water from the Nile. They won't be able to do that. Now, remember, this this is described as the land of milk and honey. And God says, here's a land of milk and honey, and it's a land of milk and honey precisely because I care for it. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, he says, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, he says. So if you drop down and look at verse 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 13, here here we'll pick up on another helpful piece of information that's going to help us. And that's going to pertain to how it is that God cares for the land by way of his reign. Look at verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain. 
that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. So here he says that I will give you the early rain and I will give you the later rain. Now, what is the early rain and what is the later rain? Well, the year went like this. In November, there would come these heavy torrential rainfalls. And what that would do is sort of soften the ground and make the ground plowable or cultivatable for the people. Because remember, this is the day before the days of tractors and implements that can tear up the ground in order to plant. And so they needed the ground to be softened. And God would do that. And he would send these torrential rainfalls to moisten the earth and loosen the earth and to prepare the earth from both a hardness standpoint and a moisture standpoint to receive the crops that would then be planted. So after the November rains, the rains would be sort of sporadic and lighter. After the crops were planted, as the crops were growing, the the rains would be less torrential, less heavy, and more sporadic up until about April or May. And in April or May would then become another rainy season. This, this would now, as you can guess, be called the later rains. The early rains or the November rains and then the later rains or the April-May rains. And so April, May, April, May would come along and then there'd be these heavier torrential type rainfalls as, uh, called, as they're called the later rains. And that would then finalize the crop for harvest that would then be ready to harvest after that. Now, following the April-May rains, the later rains, after the crops were harvested, there would then be a dry season, a drought season, so to speak, a season of no rain or virtually no rain up until, you guessed it, the early rains came once again in November. And during that period of time, the earth would not, would, would not go dry or barren. Instead, it would be watered by dew. Heavy dew. We see this frequently in the Old Testament even. The Old Testament will speak of the dew of Israel. Just one example, Deuteronomy 33, it says that Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped the dew down. Or Psalm 133. Listen to this comparison now of how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings of life forevermore. So as you can see the comparison there, the Israelites, they would be so accustomed to the dew, the heavy dewfall, the watering, the nourishing of the ground from May or, or the end of the later rains through November or the beginning of the early rains. The water, the, the dew would keep the earth moist in that period. And that, that shows up in our scriptures as a metaphor of, or a blessing from the Lord's continued careful hand. So you, you know what, a, what produces a dew, right? A, a dew is produced when the air is moist and there's a difference in temperature between day and night. When the day will be warmer and the warmer air will hold the moisture in it. And then as the night cools, the the cooler air can no longer hold the moisture, and so it will deposit the moisture in the form of dew. We're accustomed to seeing dew here, especially in the summer. Well, in Israel, of course, it's more of an arid sort of climate, and so there's a greater difference between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures, which, if there's moisture in the air, that would then result in having a heavier dew than we are accustomed to seeing here. And this is how God cares for the land 
from the period of the later reigns through the period of the of the early reigns. This is how God cares for the land in that period. He cares for the land between the time of the early rains and the later rains by way of rainfall, and He cares for the land by way of dewfall after the later rains are done until the early rains start again in November. Now, Elijah is going to show up here and he's going to pronounce a drought. And this drought is going to be a drought of a period of years. Now, later on, we're going to learn that the drought through the through the first Kings uh, chapter 18, we're going to learn that the drought was three years. But if we were to turn to places like Luke chapter four, verse 25, where Jesus mentions Elijah, Jesus says that Elijah pronounced a drought of three years and six months. Or if we were to turn, like we did a couple Sundays ago, we looked at James chapter 5, verse 11, I think, where James once again talks about a drought, and he calls it a drought of three and a half years, or three years and six months. So Jesus and James both talked about the drought that Elijah proclaimed. The author of Kings talks about a drought that Elijah proclaims of three years. Where's the difference coming from? Is there an error in our Bibles? Was it really three and a half years, but the author of Kings got it wrong? Or was it really three years and then Jesus gets it wrong? Not at all. Elijah shows up just as the early rains are coming due. D-U-E, not D-E-W. Just as the early rains are coming due, just as it's time for the early rains to start. So therefore, Israel has already experienced six months of drought, six months of no rainfall, six months in which the land should have received dew, but no rain. And then Elijah shows up and pronounces there's not going to be no rain for a period of years, as we know will come out to be three years. So this is how all that lines up. Jesus and James are both saying that there was a total of three and a half years including the period of time that normally Israel didn't receive any rains. Elijah shows up just as Israel is supposed to start receiving the rains, and he says there's going to be no rain now. So all this coalesces, and we see once again, God's Word has made no mistake. There is no error. All of this perfectly coincides with one another. Now, Elijah shows up here, and he pronounces this drought upon the land. And when we think about a drought, we must ask ourselves the question, why a drought? Why is God going to, by way of Elijah, why is God going to bring this drought upon the land? Because when we think about a drought, especially one that's going to last years like this, then what we should think of, what should come to our mind, is suffering and death. Not just losing your favorite flowers, or perhaps losing the favorite tree in your yard or losing your grass, your grass turns brown, or, or maybe your favorite fishing hole dries up, like we would think of happening if we were to have a period of time with no rainfall. Instead, what we should think about is real suffering and death. What comes to my mind, I, I grew up in the 70s watching who was it? Suzanne, Suzanne Summers on the, on the commercials. Remember that? Remember the, those days in the 70s? You remember how the world food supply was a different situation than it is today? And thank the Lord, thank the Lord that today we've solved much of the world's food supply problem. But if you remember back in the 70s and the 80s, there was this sort of this constant famine in places like Ethiopia. And we would see on our TV screens, we would see these images of these 
African babies with these swollen stomachs from malnutrition, with the flies all around their parched, cracked lips, and their eyes were just were just drying and suffering everywhere. Horrible images, sad images, gut wrenching images. That is what should come to mind when we think about a drought that's being pronounced upon a a society that is virtually completely agricultural. So the drought is going to come, and it's not just going to mean that the Israelites no longer get their favorite garden-grown vegetables, but instead they have to eat maybe more processed food from the grocery store. That's not what this is going to mean. We know that this means they won't eat. And when they don't eat, that means the young and the old will die first. I've read that starvation is one of the most painful ways to die. So Elijah is pronouncing something very, very serious, something very somber. Why this drought? Why this suffering? All because of some Baal worship that's going on? All because the king is a Baal worshiper and he's being hard on the Yahweh worshipers there? All because the queen has brought Baal worshipers onto the payroll of the king's court? Why this drought? Is Elijah just a hard-hearted man? Somebody that could care less when elderly people die painful deaths? Or when infants die in their cribs because they've cried for eight days with no food because their mothers have no milk? Is Elijah just callous? Is he just callous to all of this? And and does he say in his heart, well, they should have repented. They brought this on themselves. The reason for this drought is not the vindictiveness of Elijah or the impatience of God, or the hard-heartedness of a God who's been offended. The reasons for this drought will go to the very character of God and the very purpose of our existence. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.